Daniel 7. Amen. The, uh, the fact that you guys are still hanging with me in Daniel 7 is proof of your love. And um, I don't want to um, uh, have any cause to stress that. And so it's my full intention of get, finishing the concurrent, uh, the contemporaneous view of Daniel 7 today. The good Lord willing, but I've got to speak quickly. And there's a lot of information uh, that's going to continue to come in this, uh, the view that I'm articulating and finishing on today on the contemporaneous view. So I've had several conversations with uh, different ones of you over the last couple of weeks, and my encouragement would be to utilize the YouTube channel because therein you can push play and then you can push pause. And then you can think about what did he just say and how did that connect with the last beast and how does, so there's two sermons on the traditional view, there's going to be two sermons on the contemporaneous view and then there was the opening sermon on Daniel 7 that was more of a general opening overview on the concept of the kingdom of God and the perspective of that from the book of Genesis all the way through into the New Testament, the expectation of the coming kingdom of Christ. So this morning, um, let's pick up where we left off last week. And that was my trying to articulate to you an understanding that Daniel's vision and what he sees of the four beasts of verses 4 through 7 as being contemporaneous nations. Contemporaneous meaning together at the same time. They're all on the world scene, all at the same time. And as I've explained um, previously, this differs obviously from the traditional view. The traditional view understands that Daniel chapter 7 is a mirrored image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream from Daniel chapter 2. The four kingdoms being that of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. That's the traditional view. The contemporaneous view understands Daniel 7 as an expansion on the revelation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream given in Daniel chapter 2. Not the exact same revelation given twice, but uh, something that is expansive and something that is new from what God had previously explained through Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Uh, Before we get too deep into this... uh, um, wanted to revisit a few of our favorite charts that we have been looking at over the last um, few weeks and to introduce to you a few new charts and I hope you like them. My concern is is they may be so small that it may be difficult to see. However, if you need a copy of this, I'll gladly print this off and give it to you. Okay, it hasn't been copyrighted yet so just use it sparingly. Okay, so this is the one you're all familiar with. This is Nebuchadnezzar's dream from chapter 2. And um, the contemporaneous view that I am going to finish today um, greatly appreciates the dream of Nebuchadnezzar from chapter 2 and agrees with the traditional view of Nebuchadnezzar's dream from chapter 2. Agrees wholeheartedly. Same for same. The way the traditionalists would understand this dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the contemporaneous view agrees with Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Babylon, the head of gold. Medes and Persians, the chest and arms of silver. 
the Grecian Empire, the belly and thighs of brass on the statue that Nebuchadnezzar sees in his dream and was given divine revelation from God through Daniel as to its meaning. And the one in particular that was given was the head of gold. If you remember, Daniel said very specifically to Nebuchadnezzar, what did he say? You are the head of gold. So that gives us a, a point of reference. And so thus, historically, he said as, as such, you will be overthrown by a different nation. And in history, we see that that was the Medes and the Persians that overthrew Babylon. And then there would be a third nation that would arise and would overthrow that nation. And we see in history that that was Greece. And so we're, not, we're, we're given a very definitive point in, of history by reference through the revelation that Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, is the head of gold. And so we build it out from there. And then uh, Greece was going to be overthrown by another aspect of this statue dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and it's the legs of iron, which we, as we go through history, and who was it that over the next major world power on the scene following Greece is Rome. So this is how this uh, dream of Nebuchadnezzar's gets built out. And then, so you've got these, um, these uh, world powers. We've got four of them here. And then we see in this dream a, an emphasis and a focus on the feet the, and the toes in particular. And then it, and we articulated there, as do the traditionalists, as do all premillennialists, they articulate this as being a not-yet-seen nation. And from Daniel's standpoint, this clearly was a not-yet-seen nation, as were all of these. And then we also see that there's going to come another kingdom that's going to like a rock cut without hands, it's going to smash the feet and become an earthly kingdom of Christ that will have no end. Now, I just gave you a little interpretive value to that, but we discovered that. And so we all agree on this. Now, the next chart I'm going to give you, I'm going to take this guy and I'm going to, I'm going to size him down just a little bit. Ready? Is that large enough to see here? I think so. Okay, so the important part that I want you to see here, the only part that I added, well, obviously the middle piece that says flow of world history, which takes us from Babylon, and so I just kind of explained how world history has flowed down through these, but it's important, I think, to always know where we are at with regard to the flow of human history and world history, and according to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, chapter 2, we are right here. There was a, there was a, a, a gap, an, un, an unbeknown gap within that revelation. So there was obviously more revelation that God was going to send later to fill in some of this, these gaps. But as you flow down through human history, uh, you do not find, you find Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and all of a sudden, if you were looking for the very next kingdom, this one right here of the feet and the toes, the ten uh, kingdoms, because it says in Daniel 2.44 that in the days of those kings, here's Daniel 2.44, I don't have the part that says in the days of those kings, and right here, the God of heaven will cause a kingdom to rise up and will endure forever. In the days of those kings is making reference to these kings, and we know this by means of further revelation, okay? So in history, here we are, 2022, 20, and we're still looking and we're still waiting to see some kind of a conglomeration of nation states that perhaps have 10 major leaders that would make that up. And 
we see that here from Daniel's uh, interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but we also are going to get it from further revelation. Are you following me so far? So where does Daniel 7 fit in all of this? Because this is where I'm hoping to help simplify some of our thinking. Here's where Daniel 7 fits. Now go, go ahead and chuckle in advance because it's a little bit much, but it's best I could do. Ready? Right here. Oh, thank you. My daughter laughed. So you can see what I've done here. I've taken from where we are in church history and the flow of human history here, the church age, and the, and the number five here and the number six here. And I've just moved it up to the top of the screen over here. That's all I did. I'm just bringing this right here over here to this side of the page or the side of the... And so here we are in, in, in human world history. Right here, 2022. 20, We're still here. You see me, I see you. Here we are. And number five and number six are still future. And that's why they're still future. And in Daniel's vision of chapter 7, the contemporaneous view, not the traditional view that I've already articulated for you, the contemporaneous view that we're working on and finishing today sees this. It sees that there's been an expansion of revelation given to us with regard to number 5 right here. And see, here's the number 5 right here. There's been an expansion of this. In the Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it was talked about feet and toes. In Daniel's vision, those feet and those toes right here are connected to this fourth beast that arises out of the sea in Daniel's vision. Now, I'm messing up my own artwork here by coloring over it. Probably shouldn't do that. So, the four beasts that Daniel sees are contemporaneous Four dominant contemporaneous kingdoms that are on the earth at the same time that this beast right here that's going to be the beast, the nation that's ruled by the Antichrist is on the scene and as we're going to see later in chapter 7 is waging war against God and the saints of God. Which puts us to the, towards the very end of human history which is what this does because the next in line is number 6 which was the rock from heaven that destroys human governments and becomes a kingdom itself. And so what we're going to see today is Daniel's vision articulating these four beasts as contemporaneous beasts all on the earth at the same time. This fourth beast right here is an expansion of revelation of this number five. The feet and the toes become the ten horns. So you've got ten toes and they become the ten horns and we see very clearly in Daniel chapter 7 that these horns are kings and thus kingdoms. We're given that revelation. We don't have to speculate. We don't have to guess. It's given to us in the text. That makes it simple, right? We like it when that happens. So these ten horns on this beast correlate with these ten toes. And so this is an expansion and new revelation built on Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. It's not just repeating the same thing. And so by the time you get through Verses 4 through 7, we're going to see today, you've got these four contemporaneous nations all on the scene at the same time, and they're being dominated by this fourth beast. And then when we get to verse 8, see right here, verse 8? Daniel takes another gander at that beast with the horns. And it's at this point in verse 8 where we're given more 
revelation. We're given new revelation yet again of a little horn that arises and overpowers three. Now, you can't see the three of them right here in the, in the bloody mess that he left them in. But uh, he overpowers three and he becomes a larger horn and a more dominant leader. And this is the beginning of the career or the reign of the Antichrist and the bringing together of a one world government system by which he is going to attack God and the saints of God and lose miserably. Whereby there is going to be, again, a rock from heaven that's going to smash that nation, that one world conglomerate nation that's going to rise up against God. And we see right here in Daniel 7, 21 and 22, I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints. This horn right here is, start, is, is waging war with the saints and overcoming them. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given in favor of the saints of the highest one and the season arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. It's an expansion of what we saw in Nebuchadnezzar's dream from chapter 2 through a vision that God gives Daniel in chapter 7. Clear as mud, right? See, I've been working on this for weeks. You get to hear it in little snippets. It works for me in my brain. If you have any questions at all, see Pastor Matt. He will gladly straighten you out on every bit of this. He loves doing that, and so would I. Okay, are we all together now? I sure hope so. I want to pick up where we left off last week, and we're going to just briefly touch verse 4. We did look at verse 4 last week, yes, but we went into some lengthy details on chapter 7, verse 4, and the first beast, the, the first of these beasts, which is what? Number one here, it's a lion with wings, notice. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. So again, this nation is like a lion, has wings, would simply and forcefully make us think of this nation as being both strong and swift, like a lion, like an eagle. However, we see here in verse 4 that its wings were plucked. The wings of this beast, this mighty beast, are plucked, which gives us a good indication that something negative has happened to this powerful, swift, strong animal. Someone has acted against this, this nation and has plucked its wings. It's been grounded, which again is a bad thing if you're a nation hoping for domination. And also notice here that the plucking action is something that happened to this nation. It was from a, a source outside of this nation. This nation did not just willingly say, hey, let's pluck our own wings and become weaker. It's, an, it's a power acting against this nation that plucks its wings. Daniel is seeing a vision of a, a once very strong, powerful nation being dismantled right before his eyes. And it continues, and we see that this lion-like beast has taken off all four of its feet. It's lifted up, an, uh, uh, an action that happens against it as well. It doesn't, it's, not a, it's a passive verb. And is made to stand on two feet like a man. 
Now, in the traditionalist view, this was viewed as a good thing. This was when Nebuchadnezzar was restored to his right mind, and he was made to stand back up like a man, and his, his mind was given back to him. And so that's where we connected that in the traditional view. But I don't believe that's the best way to understand this passage. Daniel is seeing a once mighty, strong beast of, an, of a nation that is being taken down. Its wings are plucked. Its cause, it is made to stand up on two feet. Anytime you take a lion, any kind of a cat, a cat on four feet is a deadly beast. Can you imagine trying to see a lion running around on its hind two feet? How agile of, a, of an animal would that be? It would be grotesquely funny to watch. I just mixed two metaphors there. However, you get my point. It's a, it's a lessening, it's a weakening of this once strong nation. And not only that, we see it continues, the, the diminishing of this nation continues. A human mind was also given to it. We articulated very clearly that the translation here in the New American mind is not really the best translation. Um, David, you're going to like this. King James has what? Heart. Thank you very much. And whenever you go to the LXX, which is the Greek translation of the, of, the, of the Hebrew Bible, we call it the Septuagint, the LXX, the 70. The word used here in translation is cardia for heart. So a human heart was given to it. Again, a significant downgrade from the courageous heart of a lion to a very timid heart of a man. This nation is being dismantled right before Daniel's own eyes. This is what Daniel sees. A once powerful nation brought into subjugation to another outside power and authority, which I'm articulating is going to ultimately, ultimately be that fourth beast that the Antichrist overtakes and unites into a one world power. The second beast, verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. Now, again, as I mentioned last week, according to the traditional view, this bear must be the Medo-Persian Empire because that's what Nebuchadnezzar's dream demands. However, like I also told you last week, there isn't any indication whatsoever that the Medes and Persian, that kingdom, was ever identifiable with any shape or form of a bear. They didn't find any clay flower pots with bear inscriptions on the sides of them. There's n this, the, the bear aspect of this plays no role in identifying this nation whatsoever, which leads to speculative determinations. You may remember the quote of my dear brother, Dr. Walvert. Listen to, I'm using Dr. Walvard because there's none better. There's none better than Dr. Walvard, and I respect him greatly. We just have a difference of opinion with regard to Daniel 7. But notice how the language he uses. The bear, he said, is described as having three ribs in its mouth. Now notice this. Scripture does not tell us the meaning. Well, when we run into that kind of a statement, we ought to be thinking what? Okay. I'm going to be like a Berean. I'm not going to just take this hook, line, and sinker. Scripture does not tell us the meaning of the three ribs. And many suggestions have been offered. Key word. Probably. The best is 
that it refers to Media, Persia, and Babylon as representing the three major components of the Medo-Babylonian Empire. And that's how we take a square peg and put it into a round hole. And I hope you feel some of the tensions that interpreters have to face when they're dealing with apocalyptic literature. And sometimes we can have overly forced meanings because we have it, our outcome is already set and sure. And so when the outcome is set and sure, then when we go and we look at a text, we know that this text must then therefore fit our outcomes. And so we say things like, probably it's the best, many suggestions, and Scripture just doesn't tell us. So such is the difficulty of trying to do this. We're left guessing. But there's a better way. There is a better way. Uh, what do we ask ourselves when doing Bible study? What do I see? Observation, observation, observation. Right? When you go to the texts of Scripture, you ask yourself, what do I see? See, as a matter of fact, the prof, Dr. Hendricks, he had, I had him for a class. He, he made us make 75 observations over Daniel 1, verse 8. I want you to do that as your homework this week and bring it back and show me next week. You can just email it to me. 75 different, unique observations from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. To train us as seminarians, as future theologians, to never skip past the hard work of asking yourself, what do you see? What do you see? What do you see? Observation, observation. And, and what we see with this bear-like nation is a nation that looks like a bear. Now, isn't that deep? Man, I looked at that as many ways as I could, and I came up with a nation, Royce, that looks like a bear. So when I ask myself, well, what's a bear like? Well, some adjectives came to mind. Ferocious, strong, big, uh, fearless. Some of these adjectives that would easily describe a bear that's got three ribs with blood dripping out of its mouth. I think that those would be some. There could be others. And so we see a nation that's like a bear in those regards. Ferocious, strong, fearless, and other things that a lot of other nations could be described as. There's nothing overly complex and difficult because I'm not trying to fit this into some preconceived idea. I'm just asking myself, what do I see in the text? And seeing that this bear has three ribs in its mouth, we also probably are understanding that in this vision here we're going to see later very obviously defined as a kingdom a, a beast representing a king and a nation so this bear-like ferocious strong nation that's that has these ribs in its mouth is a nation and with these ribs in its mouth and it's told later to devour arise eat more meat it might mean that this nation is um, in the process of maybe chewing up and destroying other people other people nations Am I being a little speculative? A little. But I'm definitely trying to lessen that as much as possible. Are you with me? 
It wasn't very solid. Are you with me? Are you tracking? I didn't say, are you liking it? I'm saying, are you tracking? Thank you. So again, we see in verse 5, at the end of verse 5, this nation is instructed. Do I have 5 here? Yeah. This nation is instructed to eat much meat. But notice, one of the key observations, uh, most significant observations that I see when I look into this verse is this verb raised up. This bear was raised up on one side. This nation that's like a bear was raised up on one side. It's something we clearly see in the text. The reason why I believe this is a very significant part of understanding this text is because of that word raised up. That verb is a passive verb. It tells us that this bear-like nation is raised up on its side, but not of its own accord. The power used to raise that bear up is not the bear's own source. It's a passive verb. Something else is causing this bear, this nation that looks like a bear, to be raised up. Which is probably the same force that we see at the end of verse 5 telling this bear what to do. See at the end of verse 5, and thus they said to it, the bear-like nation, they're giving it orders, whoever the they are, arise, devour much meat. Who are the they? It would perhaps seem reasonable to conclude that the they here are the same power or authority that has kept this bear-like nation raised up, propped up, and in battle for some particular purpose and cause. This bear is not acting on its own authority based on the language and the verb that we see in the text. So what, we, what, what do we see? What do we see? What do we see? Words have meanings, and so we do word studies. And so this is how we come to these kinds of determinations and understanding what Daniel is seeing within his vision. And this is what Daniel has seen. A great, ferocious, bear-like nation that has been weakened to such a point that another force is having to prop it up, raise it up on one side at least. It's still got blood coming off the, the meat in its mouth and it's given instructions and they tell it to continue to devour and eat much meat. So we have again an expansiveness of revelation in Daniel 7 from what we had in Daniel chapter 2 of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But we also have more progressive revelation in the book of Revelation. We're not there yet. So keep bearing with me. The third beast, verse 6. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now, you may recall, again, from the teaching I gave on the traditional view, it sees this beast as Greece because of the dream from chapter 2 of Nebuchadnezzar. It has to be Greece, ergo we see that, that Greece was like a leopard. And we know, after all, that Alexander the Great conquered the world with great ferocious speed, right? And so hence the leopard. But if you go back in history, there's never any national symbolism whatsoever with the Grecian nation and leopards. 
That was, the, that was the interpretive value that we gave the lion, the first beast. Remember, we said that, that Babylon had national symbolism because it had lions on gates. And so that becomes one of the difficulties when we look at these other animals. There's never any other nationalistic identification whatsoever with any of them. And the other difficulty we, we have here in verse 6, when we just ask ourselves, what do we see? If this indeed is supposed to be Greece, what we don't see is we don't see Alexander the Great. This vision... Some would say, well, it just skipped over Alexander the Great. This beast that came up out of the sea of humanity that Daniel sees immediately has the four successors to the Grecian nation that Alexander the Great bequeathed his great kingdom to prior to his death. That's the only way to try to articulate the things that we see in this vision. Instead, I think perhaps there is a different way that doesn't take a square peg and make it somewhat fit into a round hole, it seems best to me to take this third beast for what it is. It's like a leopard. What are leopards like? Simple observation, simple question. Leopards are very what? Fast. This was a very fast nation, undoubtedly, with, without question. And not only is it like a leopard and fast that way, it had on its back four wings so can you say doubly fast it wasn't just fast it was fast fast and swift right this is what some of the simplest observation have you heard of Occam's razor by the way it's a principle of interpretation that says if you can find the simplest explanation for something look for no other explanation look up Occam and his razor theory should have razors, never mind, Occam's razor. So it's doubly fast, and um, we also see that this beast has how many heads on its body? Four, and again, considering later we see in, Re in Daniel 7, these beasts are nations, and so it probably would make best sense for us to think of this as a nation that is a combination of four different countries, four different leaders, hence four heads, and they've come together for their collective good, national interest, and defense. After all, they're at the end of the days, at the time of the Antichrist, and the warrings of the Antichrist on earth, who ultimately rages and wages war against God Almighty at the Battle of Armageddon and loses. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of bloodshed going on. So these nations probably are congealing together for purposes of national defense, national interest, and national existence is an easy way to perhaps understand this. So, this leopard, it's doubly fast. It appears to be a nation that's made up of four different heads, four leaders, perhaps four countries. And then the question we have to ask here at the very end, it had four heads, and it says, and. Dominion was what? Given. Who, who, who does the giving? Well, we're not explicitly told who gave this nation-like, leopard-looking, four-winged creature. Remember, my, I, I found a really cool picture of that. We're not told who, who gave them this. Some, some just want to articulate God gave them that authority. And we say, well, God gives all nations authority. God gives all, he has all authority in heaven and earth. But ultimately, 
on the, on the human scene, who did God use and how is he using nations and moving people and ultimately gave this one authority? It was given authority. Well, as we've looked at the lion, the bear, and the leopard, Daniel sees the, the, the depletion of the lion the most, the bear probably second most, and then this third one here, it still seems to have an authority outside of itself that has given it somewhat some dominion. And so it's my best estimation, and there's my best estimation, as Walver gave his, my best estimation is that the fourth beast that we're about to take a peek at is the one that's propping these up. It's the one that plucked off the wings, props them up, and enfolds these other major world nations that are on the scene at the same time, contemporaneous, to start forming a, a conglomeration of one world power at the end that the Antichrist ultimately overtakes, chapter 7, verse 8, and leads in war against God and his saints. That's what I'm seeing. Let's keep looking. Observation, observation, observation. Look at verse 7. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed, I'm assuming, with its large iron teeth. It, iron teeth. It's crushing and devouring, and it's tramped down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Well, this beast isn't designated specifically by an animal imagery at all, as were the others. It's just described by its brutality. Dreadful, terrifying, extremely strong, which, again, could be said of any of the preceding nations, right? I mean, is there ever been an empire that didn't have world power that probably wasn't dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong? Probably not. That's how they got there. And so whenever we try to fit this into being the traditional view of Rome, we would obviously say that Rome was dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong without question. But in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar with regard to the, the statute image, this Roman empire had two legs. And so we like to say that Rome was divided in two by the east and the west. But this vision that Daniel sees of this beast is very un-Rome-like in that regard and that there's no division of this beast Matter of fact, we're going to see this beast pulling in other nations unto itself and enfolding them into itself. And by progressive revelation, even through the, the Apostle John's progressive revelation, in Revelation chapter 13, if you ever get a chance later today to go read that, you will see this. There's really not a solid way to make this round peg fit into that square hole to say this is Rome. So what I've in essence done here is I've tipped you my hat as to why I transitioned away from the traditional view and into a contemporaneous view of understanding Daniel chapter 7. For these kinds of observations and continually going back to the text, the word of God and saying, what do I see? What do I see? I mean, let me, let me just tell you, you have, you have no idea how many times I have read and reread and read and reread and reread and read and reread Daniel 7 over the past month. I think I've got it all memorized because I've just been re I didn't try to memorize any of it. Because I keep looking and I find myself staring at words. And then going and looking in at those words. What's the what's the etymology of that word? What can I discover? The Spirit of God put that word on a page. 
And that word has voice or mood or tense. It has something that's going to give a clue and some kind of an indication as to how it's best to be understood. And this is what it looks like for us when we do the work of the Berean. Amen? So after this, I kept looking, verse 7, in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful, terrifying, extremely strong. Again, it devoured, crushed, trampled down with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before. It had ten horns. This, in Daniel's vision, this fourth beast is the beast that I believe that brings all the other beasts into subjugation. Daniel saw the lion and the degradation of that lion. The bear was propped up by another source outside of itself. The leopard, someone gave it some authority, some dominion. And it seems with the continuation and the flow of Daniel chapter 7, that it's this that we see in this beast. Because notice what it says. Obviously, it's terrifying, extremely strong. It's got these big, large iron teeth. You can kind of probably see that in your mind's eye. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. So... The question that we ask ourselves here is this one right here. And some translations don't have the remainder. It says what was left over. And so we have to ask ourselves of this fourth beast here, what was left over? The remainder of what? What was it trampling down with its feet? The remainder of what? The leftover aspect of what? And those are the black holes in which interpreters fall into, and you fall into space. And rather than doing the, you know, I don't know, but I'm going to just try to come up with something the best I can, what we do is we go back to the text. And when you fall into a black hole, you ask the text contextually then, context, 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 what do I see? And in this context, that which is left over or that which would be the remainder that gets devoured, crushed, trampled down with its feet seems best contextually to fit the other three major nations and their degradation that we saw. It was trampling down the rest of the nations, those nations that were left over towards the end of what I'm perceiving in the text and with further revelation from the book of Revelation to be what would be considered a third world war. And these are the four major nations, the conglomerate nations that are left on the earth. And it's this fourth beast that seems to be the most powerful of them all. And it seems to me that it's this fourth beast that has propped up the bear, that's using the lion-like nation for its purposes. It's completely dismantled it. Still has it there. We're going to see that it's still around, but using it for its purposes. And it's the one that probably gave the dominion to the leopard-like nation. That's what would seem to be a reasonable understanding by just asking ourselves, what do we see in the text? Because this beast, after all, as Daniel saw, it was different from all those other beasts that he saw that were what? Before it. 
The word before here is a significant textual clue for the contemporaneous view. To articulate and to argue very cogently and without any effort really at all. That the four nations that Daniel sees here are indeed all on the earth at the same time towards the end of the world as we're going to know it. That this is not a recapitulation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. It seems to me that that traditional view could be failed by one simple preposition. Right here in Daniel 7, 7, it's this word, this preposition, before. The fourth beast was different from all the beasts that were before it. Right? This word in the Aramaic, I'm probably not going to pronounce it correctly. Um, it's a Q-O-Dom, Quodom. That's transliterated into English, but Quodom is the Aramaic word in the text for this preposition before. Quodom, this word, is a word that's used exclusively in what we would refer to as a spatial sense instead of a temporal sense. In other words, it was different from all the beasts that were kudam, before it. Temporal sense of the word before. Simple sentence. He tied his shoes before he ran. It's temporal. What did he do first? He tied his shoes. What did he do after that? Well, he ran. And because before he ran, he tied his shoes. Temporal. That's not the use of kadam. Kadam is used exclusively in a spatial sense. Example, I put some food before the king. Same word before. Well, actually in the Aramaic, they're not the same words. There is a word in the Aramaic that has a temporal sense given to it that's translated, that translates this preposition before. That's not this word in the book of Daniel. It's this word right here, kudam, is used in a spatial sense. So the food that was put before the king means it's where? It's in front of the king. It's before the king. The food was put before the king. Here's the king and the food is before him. That's the spatial sense in which the word kudam is used in Daniel chapter 7. So when we see that it, this beast was different from all the beasts that were what? Before it. We're not thinking chronologically. Babylon and then Medo-Persia and then Greece and then Rome. That's temporal. That's not the word that would have been used in the text in that case. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. The fourth beast has these other three beasts in front of it. Daniel's vision sees the fourth beast and the other three beasts are before it or in front of it. And to help give some textual clarity to this, I'm going to bring to your attention and remind you that in Daniel chapter 2 verse 4, all the way through the end of chapter 7, Daniel's in Aramaic. So it starts off in Hebrew, in chapter 2 verse 4 it switches to Aramaic. And then, and then all the way through chapter 7, it's Aramaic. And then you get to chapter 8, and it picks up again with the Hebrew. Okay? 
Following me? Let me show you all the uses in the book of Daniel of this preposition, kudam, beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through chapter 7, the entire area of Aramaic in Daniel. You ready? You got Daniel 2.9, Daniel 2.27, Daniel 2.36, Daniel 3, 3.3, 3.13, 4.8, 5.13, 5.15, 5.17, 5.19, 5.23. Let's just pick any of them. We've, we've, got, we've got Kudam highlighted for us. Just pick any of them. Read any of these. And what you will, def- and what you will discover very obviously is every one of these is used in a spatial sense. Never in a temporal sense. Ever. Oh, I got more. Chapter 6, 10, 11, 12, 13, 18, 22, 24, 26. Kudam, 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 kudam. And so on and so forth. Go read them yourselves. I don't have time this morning. I'm looking at the clock. Every single one of these. Spatial sense. Never in a temporal sense. Are you starting to see the... uh, you starting to see the pattern? Yes? I'm hoping so. I'm, I'm working hard to help you see the patterns that I'm seeing, okay? I'm not done yet because I said it went all the way through chapter 7, right? So 7, 7, 7, 8, 7, 10, 7, 10, 7, 13, 7, 20. Read every one of these. It's in a spatial sense. But the traditional view wants us to believe right here on this one time in Daniel 7, 7. This is the one time it goes against grammar and grammar rules. And this is the one time kudam is used in a temporal sense. Ergo, it fits Daniel chapter 2 and the model from Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now, I don't know about you. Um, did I mention Ocker's Raisin? Razor, Occam's razor, yeah. Um, no. The beasts that were before it. The beast, Daniel sees the fourth beast, and these other three beasts were in front of that beast. There's no other reasonable way. In my estimation, my humble estimation, I hope you know that it is deeply a humble estimation. I told you and I articulated many times that I hold to a minority view that the traditional view is the majority view without question. I've articulated that and Dr. Walvert and others have helped keep it a traditional view because they, their books that they write are some of the more, most popular books written and commentaries written on books like Daniel and so forth and such. I've just come to a place in my estimation of biblical exegesis that I prefer this contemporary view and I'm showing you my reasons why and if we continue some of you maybe differ from me let me tell you straight up I, it's okay I love you and I, I hope you still love me I've, I've seen some I've run into some people who are very very rigid with it with when it comes to eschatology and you very just as all of a sudden you become on the somehow you're in a different camp this isn't putting any of us in different camps if you choose not to see what I see or interpret it the way I'm interpreting it. That doesn't put us in different camps. Of all the eschatology camps that are out there, there's a premillennial camp that's out there. It's a big tent, and there's a lot of people under that tent. And if we have some dif- differences of opinions and interpretations within that tent, we need to still love each other and be okay and be able to talk about it and wrestle over what? 
Observation, observation, observation. What did you see? What made you go from this view to that view or from this view to this view? What did you see in the text? How did, it, how did you get there? And that's what we do with the Word of God. Amen? That's the way I do it with the Word of God. And so here, um, do I got seven? Yep, here in seven, this beast, this fourth beast is different from all the beasts. These are the other beasts that were before it. Right there before it, that's what Daniel sees. Let's keep moving. Um, Oh, here's my beautiful slide again. And so... Here's the fourth beast and all these beasts. Now, that one's not right, and that's, that's a bad picture. It's not really in front of it. Before it, it's kind of off to the side, but you get the point. Okay, verse 8. Verse 8. While I was contemplating the horn, behold, another horn. And this is where, again, progressive revelation comes in. This seventh horn has already done significant damage in coalescing these nations under its power. And I just reckon, remembered, Matt, I don't know how I failed to get this one in, that the ten horns is a representation of ten kings. We're going to see that later in Daniel chapter 7. And so again, an, another beast that's a, it's a uh, conglomerate of world nations and countries that have banned themselves together for political interest and protection of one another. And that fourth beast was different. It was the most powerful, and it, was, it hampered all the other ones, and it was using them. And then, then verse 8, while I was contemplating the horns... Behold, another horn, a little one came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. Oh, there's our word before again. Used in a spatial sense. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boast. Daniel here sees another horn, a little one. It came up among the other horns. So again, it's important to remember that these horns are what? So not get confused with, the, with horns. These are leaders of nations, like a president or a chancellor. And Daniel sees here that this other horn, another world leader, a different one, eventually arises among those ten world leaders, ten horns, and is able to overpower three of them. And as it says, they were pulled out by the roots. See right here? There's the best picture I could find of that. There's three of them. It might be kind of hard to see. Oh, looky here. I can do that. See there? There's the three. They got pulled out by the roots, and there's the horn with, what does it say in the text? With eyes and a mouth. Eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boast. Right there. Okay? So, the... um. Little horn, this new world leader that Daniel sees in his vision, just emerges on the scene. The fourth beast has already been doing trampling, stomping, chomping, big teeth. It's already been doing all that. This little horn, now this different world leader in Daniel's vision, just emerges on the scene. And you might ask, how? I don't know. The text simply doesn't say. And I looked, and I looked. And I looked, and it didn't say. But what it did say is that it possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boast. That's what it did say. It plucked up three of the world leaders, 
overpowered them. And again, what we're going to see a little bit later in Revelation is that this is the, this little horn becomes the end time Antichrist. And it's going to take that fourth beast and overpower it and turn it into a one world government whereby he is going to cause everybody around the world to take his mark. And if you don't take his mark, you will not be able to do business. You will not be able to purchase food, have housing, probably transportation. He's going to make it very easy to identify the saints of God who refuse to take his mark. You will become very obvious very quickly. Now, more on him in just a bit. Man, I'm already out of time. Golly, I hate to put y'all through another Daniel 7. Have you had enough Daniel 7? Do you want to finish this today or next week? You tell me. I could go all day long with this. What's that? Say that again. Skip final song. See if I can't fit this in within the course of one song. Man, he's, he has a lot of faith in me right here. I don't, I, don't know if, I don't know if they have that much faith in me, brother. Um, man, there's some good information that I need to get to you. It's already 1130. The kids start getting restless. I'm hearing this. Hey. Observation, observation, <laughs> observation. What has he seen? Uh, <laughs> the interpretation is no way. It ain't going to happen. Well, I don't know about you guys. I, I get fired up about this stuff. I love the Word of God, and I love digging into words within the Word of God and then expounding upon those, and hopefully it's my prayer that it brings light and revelation. Because when we... <laughs> When we, when we get to the end of this, man, I, oh, I'm, ta I'm taking you next week. We're going to pick this up next week. I'm taking you next week, and I'm going to parlay this for you over into Revelation 19, and the, the, the hair on the back of your neck is going to raise up, and you're going to be like, oh, my goodness. Progressive revelation. More insight into what Daniel sees here about verse 8 and this little horn. Thank you for being such an accommodating church that loves to hear God's word preached. I count it a privilege to be able to do what I do with you. I don't have to show up and do a dog and pony show, three points in a poem, and, and make you laugh a few times. I hope that when you leave that your brain is kind of going, wow, hmm, that your, your, your brain has been exercised, you're challenged to go dig into the word, to study, make certain that what Pastor Avert said is so. Go dig. Dig. See you, Donna. So how about we pray?